Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The Heart of BRCC. Our vision is to build a biblically-based, Christ-centered, caring community. Today's text is going to come out of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. And actually, we are beginning, we're going to be doing a little mini-series here in January, uh, where over uh, three of the next four weeks, one of the weeks we're going to have a missionary here, we're going to be looking at what it means to be a biblically-based, Christ-centered, caring community. That, that motto we say all the time. And actually what we're going to do is we're going to look at one passage of Scripture. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10, where Peter is addressing the church and he brings up all of these uh, areas. So we're going to be kind of working our way through this text over three different weeks. So we will not cover everything today in the text, but we're rather going to cover just the section on being a biblically-based church, what that means. So we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10. I will be using the New International Version. Everything you uh, need, all the verses will be up here on the screen. The text that we're working through is going to be right there in that card for you. So I encourage you to Follow along in your Bible so you can look along, be students of the word. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4, hear the words of your creator, your redeemer, the sovereign Lord and King. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the closing months of 2017, they did a poll where they went around and asked Americans all over the country uh, if they could name even one of the rights in the First Amendment. That amendment that gives us the freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right to assemble, all of these things. Can you name even one of those rights? Only 37% of Americans could even name one of them. Not all of them, just one of them, only 37%. So it's, it's no wonder when we look around and we see like the concept of religious liberty has been in great peril in recent years. It is very much not understood in our culture. And this is coming in a country that prides itself. Americans like to say we're the, the great bastion of freedom. But we've lost our understanding of what freedom is, 
what actually in our constitutional form of government gave us the freedom because we kind of came to assume at some point in the past that core values and visions that unite us as a people, you can just assume everybody understands and everybody means the same thing. But in fact, that is not the case with a country or a corporation or a family or a church. And so the same is true for Bay Ridge Christian Church. We say constantly, it's on our letterhead, we have it out on like signs, we have it all over the place. We say we are a biblically based, Christ-centered, caring community. But what does that mean? How is it that that unites us together as a congregation? That's what we're going to be talking about in January. So today we start with being biblically based, and I want to begin with the importance of Scripture. So I want you to notice in this passage, Peter is talking to a group of Christians, and he's explaining to them what it means that they have been brought into Christ. He's going to talk to them about the church. He's going to talk to them about Jesus. But he's also going to do this in a way that Scripture is central in this passage. I want you to notice, I'm going to be putting the verses back up that we just read, but I'm going to put all of the allusions and quotes to Old Testament Scripture that Peter has in this passage, and actually not all of them, but the ones that are very clear and undisputed. So I'm going to read it again so you can hear this. Peter says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men. That's Psalm 118.22 but chosen by God and precious to him. That's Isaiah 28, 16. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Exodus 19, 6 and Isaiah 61, 6. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusted him will never be put to shame. Isaiah 28, 16, again. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Psalm 118, 22. And then he moves in verse 8 and says, And a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. That's Isaiah 8, 14. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And that's if you read Isaiah 14 and 15, it's speaking about people who ought to receive the message, stumbling and falling and disobeying God's message, and that that is actually what God had prophesied ahead was going to happen. Then in verse 9, he contrasts that with us. And he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. All of those phrases come out of both Exodus 19.6 and Isaiah 43, 20, and 21. He says, that you may declare the praises of him. That's a phrase specifically out of Isaiah 43.21, who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And Peter concludes by saying, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And all of this is out of Hosea 1 to 6, uh, 1 6 uh, to 2 1, and then 2 23, because Hosea, if you remember the prophet, he had children and he had to give them names like Lo Ami, not my people and lo rohumah, which means not loved or not having received mercy. But God then comes back and says, but you who were lo ami, you who were not my people, you are now my people. You who were not loved, you've now received mercy and you are loved. And so the whole story of Hosea is there. So consider as I just went through that, Peter's hardly going a phrase without alluding to or quoting 
Scripture. Because when Peter wants to talk about what it means to be the people of God, where else is he going to turn? Peter says, I can't describe to you what it means to be the people of God. I can't describe to you what it means to be the church without going to the Scripture, without building it all upon the Scripture. And in fact, in this passage, Peter is using the metaphor of a living building for the church. It's this unusual thing because we think of nothing as being more dead than a rock. But Peter says, I'm going to use a whole bunch of Scriptures about the stone Jesus, but I want you to know he's a living stone. And therefore, when you come to him, you are living stones. And therefore, when you come into the church and you are built together, you are a living building. And when he wants to use this metaphor, the living building for the church, what he's telling us is the blueprint and the mortar that holds that building together is the scripture. When you're going to build a living building, he says, hey, the, the architect is building it according to a blueprint, and that blueprint is the word of God, the scripture. And the very mortar that is going to hold you living stones together into this living building, that is nothing other than the word of God as well. Simply put, Peter cannot conceive of the church apart from the foundation of the word of God. The church must be biblically based. Now, the reason for this is because why the scripture is so important, what we mean when we speak of the scripture, what we mean by the Bible. And the scripture is essential because it is the inspired, inerrant word of God. The final rule for the faith and practice of individual believers and of the church. Let me unpack that. That's actually our opening statement in our statement of faith that I just quoted right there is that that's what the scripture is. It is uh, God's inspired and errant word. And it's the final rule of faith and practice for both individual believers in the church. And this is not something that we say. It's something that the scripture itself claims. And in fact, Jesus himself, the living stone, proclaimed. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul is giving instructions to Timothy. And in this letter, it's one of the last things Paul ever wrote. Paul's about to die and he says, Timothy, as I'm going to be leaving, I'm going to give you my final instructions. And he's going to be telling Timothy, you have to preach the word. But before he does that, he says, in essence, here's why. Let me explain to you why the scripture has to be central to what you're doing in building the church, Timothy. And that's starting in chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed. Some older translations say inspired by God. But the, the literal word is Paul took two Greek words, theopanoustos, it was God and spirited or God and breath. And he just shoved them together. And he said, basically, God exhaled and you got the Bible you hold in your hands. That's what it is. It is God-breathed. And therefore, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He says, Timothy, whatever you're needing to do and whatever every other believer is needing to do, it's in the Scripture. God breathed and out came the Bible, so to speak. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, he speaks through individual people. If you read, when I sit down and open my Greek New Testament, there's no question if I'm reading Paul versus I'm reading John. They write very differently from one another. But God is behind it all, and he is the one speaking behind it all. And this isn't just Paul's 
idea. For Christians, what is essential is Jesus answered this question for us. As he was debating with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15, and we looked at this when we looked at Sola Scriptura a few months ago, Jesus replies to them in Matthew 15, 3, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. So notice here two things. First off, he says, he quotes out of Exodus chapter 20, and he says, And God said. Jesus says, when it's written down in the Scripture, it's not Moses says, it's God says. And he says this many times, and therefore, Jesus says, when there is conflict between what God has said and the tradition you have developed, your tradition must give way, the word of God must hold sway, because it is the final rule for faith and practice. And Jesus does this actually three times in that passage in Matthew 15. If you look at verses 3, 6, and 9, you can read the whole thing. And again, I taught on this back in October. But notice, he says, why are you breaking the command of God for the sake of your tradition? In verse 6, he actually says, thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And then in verse 9, he sums it up, and he's quoting from Isaiah, they worship me in vain, their teachings are rules taught by men. Now, please hear me. Tradition's a good thing. Tradition's not bad and evil in and of itself, but it's not ultimate. It is always judged by Scripture. And Jesus said, you all have a problem. When it comes down to Scripture and tradition, you always choose your tradition. And the effect of that, he says in verse 6, is you actually nullify the Word of God. You make the Word of God of no effect because you choose tradition over it. There can only be one final authority. And the end result of that, he says in verse 9, and he's quoting out of Isaiah, is your worship is in vain. Your teachings now are just rules taught by men. They had, they'd gotten so many levels of it. And we've seen that this is the same problem that can happen in the history of the church. But we need to understand, and this is what Peter's getting at, the reason Peter is saying, if I'm going to talk about the church, it's going to be Scripture, 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 is because since it is God's Word, Scripture is necessary and sufficient for you and I to know the truth about God, about ourselves, about the church, and about the gospel. So when Peter's talking about these things that define us as the people of God, he says, the scripture's got to be central in this passage because where else are you going to accurately, infallibly know who God is and what God says and who you are and what your needs are and what the nature of the church actually is and what the gospel is? There's only one place you can go and know, and that is the scripture. So, what we're seeing here is because it's God's word, scripture, the Bible, the, the very book you can hold in your hands, is both the blueprint and the lifeblood for the church. It describes how we are to live and how we are to build together, and it provides the nourishment that allows us to grow in health. It tells us what we're doing, and it provides the strength for us to do that very thing. And if that's true, you can, number one, see why Peter couldn't discuss the church apart from bringing the Word of God in. But secondly, 
There's no way for us to build, to build a vital, healthy congregation apart from the Word of God. So what I want us to think about a little bit the rest of the time this morning is then how do we go about building a biblically-based church? Because here's the reality. Most churches would say, well, we're, we're biblically-based. I mean, unless they're way out there and really whacked and say, you know, we don't believe the Bible at all and whatever we're doing here. Most congregations want to say, well, we, we're based on the Scripture. We're biblically based. But that's an easy claim to make. But if Scripture is really the blueprint and the mortar, if it is the foundation and the life force, life blood that God works to build in the church, how do you really make sure you're building a biblically based church? What does that look like? Well, there are four things that I think the Scripture teaches us relative to what it means to be a biblically-based church. First, in a biblically-based church, the leaders carefully study, apply, and teach God's Word. This is why in the, in the theme statement, what we're talking about today is we're seeking to build a church whose life, ministry, and mission are built upon the firm foundation of God's Word, the Bible. Well, this is life and ministry. The, the leadership of a biblically-based church is going to carefully study, apply, and teach God's Word. Notice, Peter here is a leader, and he later on says, you know, as an elder, I'm appealing to you fellow elders, and central in that, he's telling him to shepherd God's flock, feed the flock, do all of this. Peter himself is putting it into practice. He's saying, as I'm talking to you about how to live as God's people in the midst of an unholy world, I'm going to be going to Scripture, and I'm going to be studying the Scripture, I'm going to be teaching the Scripture. I'm going to be applying the Scripture in my own life and helping you to apply it in your life. That's what leaders do. In fact, if we want a, a picture of this, we can see it in the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, where we read, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Many scholars think this is actually the beginning of the synagogue system in Israel. Because if you go back and you read Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there's nothing really about synagogues there. So where did they develop? Well, most leaders think it's out of the exile. Ezra was kind of setting it up here. But notice the pattern that Ezra is doing. Ezra devotes himself to study the law of the Lord. He devotes himself to observe the law of the Lord personally. Ezra studies it. He applies it personally, and then he teaches its decrees and laws in Israel. He teaches it to others. So a leader has to carefully and consistently study, and then personally apply, and then teach God's word to the congregation, helping them to understand it and personally apply it in their lives. That is the call of a leader. It's not to be a chief executive officer. It's not to be a person who gets everybody pumped up. It's to be somebody who speaks the Word of God, who is studying the Word of God, who is personally applying the Word of God, and then is helping other people to study and apply the Word of God. And so if you go to the qualifications for leaders in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3, what's interesting is both what's there and what's not there. What's not there is that they're necessarily good business leaders. What is there is they are able to study and apply the Word of God in their own life so that they have godly character 
And then we're told that they are able to help other people understand the word of God as well. They are apt to teach. That doesn't mean that every leader in the church has to stand up and exposit a passage of scripture. It does mean that they have to be personally committed to the word of God, able to understand what it says and help other people understand what it says, including how to apply it today. What does that mean? How does that work out in my life? So in a biblically-based church, the leaders are giving themselves to the careful study, application, and teaching of God's Word. Secondly, in a biblically-based church, every member must study God's Word for themselves, seeking to test everything the leaders teach to make sure it matches Scripture. I've said this verse many times. If you've never practiced Scripture memory, here's a great one to start with. Acts 17, 11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now notice when you do this, there's two extremes to avoid. There's one that says we just simply receive everything the leaders say, and if they said it, it must be true. That's actually giving ourselves back to tradition rather than the word of God. That's letting somebody else, that's saying, Moses, you go to the mountain, you hear from God, you just tell me what to do. But that's not what we're called to do. We are called, each of us, to study the scripture. So that's one danger. The other danger that can be there, however, is that we practice, uh, you know, my ministry is the ministry of suspicion. Whatever that guy is saying up there, I don't trust. I just assume he's wrong. Okay, notice here what they're contrasting. That's the way the people in Thessalonica were. They didn't really listen to what Paul said. They ran Paul out of town. They persecuted the church. They didn't look at the scripture. Luke says, now see, here's what the Bereans were. They received the message eagerly. They believed Paul was speaking the word of God. But what they did then was they went and they examined the scriptures themselves to make sure what Paul said was true. So that's the call. In a biblically-based church, the leaders are teaching the Word of God, but every one of us are hearing, personally examining, testing, looking, so that we can rejoice together that God's Word is being spoken. So each member has to study God's Word on their own to make sure the leaders are not distorting Scripture. Every cult that has ever been has gotten out there because people didn't practice this. They just listen to crazy stuff that the rest of us on the outside say, how could you have believed that? Well, we believed it because we didn't study the Word of God on our own. And the problem started a long time before that. This is one of the reasons what we encourage you to do. Not only will today's audio be out on the web on Tuesday, but the outline is there. So you can sit down and look at every single thing and say, Brett said this, is that really true? Take it. Everything I'm saying is there. It's right there so you can listen, you can look at it, you can read along and study. Because if we're going to be a biblically-based church, every living stone has to be in the Word of God. It's that central to who we are. Third thing is in a biblically-based church, every member must speak God's Word to one another. In other words, life and ministry is not just what leaders do. It's what all of us do. This is, we're, you know, we're going to talk as we continue working through this passage, but the living stones are built together. They're, they're mortared together with one another. And part of what's doing that is we're speaking God's word to each other. 
Another passage where Paul brings us out, for example, is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Another great text where Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And he's speaking to the whole church. So it's not just me individually, and we can tell that by the, the pronouns in the Greek. But beyond that, he says, as you teach and admonish one another, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So notice here that who's teaching and admonishing here? Everybody. Each member of the church. He doesn't say, you leaders let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Everybody let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And how do you do that? As you teach and admonish one another. And in fact, it really comes out that part of that, and I want to encourage you in this. Did you know you are exercising this teaching admonishing ministry when you are singing on Sunday morning? Because it's not that, where the NIV adds the word there, and, as, as almost it's a separate thing. But a big part of the teaching, because there's not an and in the Greek, it's literally, uh, as you teach and admonish one another, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs uh, with gratitude in your hearts to God. What that means, as those of us who are singing this morning, it is well with my soul. Sorrows and sea billows may roll, but it is well with my soul. You're actually singing to me and teaching and admonishing me. Brett, get your eyes off your navel. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He rules all things and he rules them for his glory and for your good. Believe that. Hear that. Receive that. And as I'm singing, I'm doing the same thing to you. And if I'm not singing, I'm disobeying. That's what I'm doing. I'm saying, you're not important enough for me to teach and admonish. I don't love you enough that I want you to hear and receive the Word of God. Because the goal here is let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Not just, you can't have that just by careful exposition of the scripture. I have promised before and I promise you again, I will always give myself to study. I am never ever one time going to stand up here on a Sunday and not have prepared. Not going to happen. Okay? And if I do that with all of my heart, the word will not dwell richly. It's not enough. This is, it's got to be the mortar between every stone in the building. We've got to teach and admonish one another. All of us help to, have to help each other to know and apply God's word in our lives. Means we need to do it as you're walking out towards your car. You, you do it during the five minute break. You say, let's get together this week and have a cup of coffee and we're just, what's God speaking to you? What's going on? How's the Lord at work in your life? We teach and admonish one another in the word of God and how to apply it. And you can be a new believer. You have no idea how some of you who are much younger in the faith than I am, just something you will say or do, you have no idea how it just speaks to me and encourages me. And God is actually there working, teaching and admonishing and sometimes correcting me and saying, you're, you're getting off the path, hear my word. So, so all of us have to do that. And then the fourth area is in a biblically-based church, every member, so notice three of the four is about what everybody is doing, not just leaders. 
Every member must speak God's word to those who don't yet know Jesus. This is part of our mission as a church. Notice at the end of it, Peter has been talking about the church and then he digresses a little bit. And he says, there are those who refuse to obey the message. They refuse to. And then he does this, that great but, one of those great words in scripture, but this is not true of us because who we are, he says, is you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That, here's why. Why are you and I not only chosen people, but a royal priesthood. Why is it that everybody in here is a priest? See, priests are people who are in between God and others. That's what a priest did. They interceded for the people. They stood there. They tried to speak to the people to, to read the word of God to them, and then they tried to pray for the people and take their concerns back to God. And Peter says, that's who you are as the people of God. And you do this that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter says, if you understand who you were, if you understand that like Hosea's children, at one time you were low on me, you were not my people. But now purely because of the mercy of God. Nothing in you. God called you out of darkness and said, you're no longer low on me, not my people. You are now on me. You are my people. I have chosen you. You are my treasured possession. The whole earth is mine, but when I look down, what I love is you. And Peter says, man, when you realize that, and you knew you had not received mercy, but now you are loved and under mercy. So there's only one response, and that you declare the praises of God. You speak God's praises to one another. Once again, a great way to do that is even as we're singing, but we do it as we speak to each other, and it certainly includes other believers, but really in the context here, Peter's predominantly talking about us declaring the praises of God even to unbelievers. If you go back and you look in verse 8, he's talking about those who've rejected the message. This is verses 9 and 10. In verse 11 and 12, he's back to talking about being in the midst of an ungodly, sinful world that's trying to destroy us and how we live. The whole context on both sides is being in the middle of an unbelieving world. And Peter says, here's what you do. You declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Because you and I could be those who disobey the message. You and I could be those who stumble over the rock rather than being built upon the rock. And what that calls out of us is that we are to reach out to them, to care for them, to declare God's praises to them, to speak the word of God to them. Once again, it's not just in this passage. Paul says the same thing in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And he says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. He's speaking of unbelievers. Make the most of every opportunity. I think the King James used to have redeeming the time. It uses a, a Greek word kairos that means not just time as it, uh, chronos is the Greek word that means just time as it goes, like an unending river. Kairos is those moments in time that really stand out and something big is happening. And uh, Paul says, when you have one of those, when you're in a relationship with somebody and you see that opportune moment, make the most of it. 
Don't let it pass you by. And then he says in verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So Paul's telling us that each of us has to be wise, looking for and making the most of every opportunity to reach unbelievers. And notice he specifically there says, let your conversation. And this is not just, you know, the old King James sometimes used conversation to mean your mode of life. That's not what the word means here. It means your speech. Let your speech be full of grace, seasoned with salt, knowing how to answer everyone, how to talk to them, how to get the gospel out to them. So God's mouth has to fill our conversations, both with believers and unbelievers, constantly pointing to the gospel. When we're doing it with believers, we're reminding them that you were not the people of God, but now you are the people of God. You were once without mercy, but you are now covered in mercy. And when we are speaking to unbelievers, we're letting them know that you may not be the people of God now, but God extends his mercy towards you. Do you hear? Do you see? You can never work your own salvation. We, we live in the midst of people who they don't understand the gospel. They believe that we, we want to put God out of our mind because we believe if there is a God he is a judge. He is not going to accept us. And so we try to push away any sense of who God is. And we have the privilege in the midst of that of saying, look, you're, you're in a worse situation than you ever thought. Your sin is deeper and broader and worse than you ever thought. But here's the good news. God is more gracious and kind and forgiving than you have ever believed. Hear the good news. Respond to the gospel. So if it's going to be a biblically-based church, the leaders are going to study and apply and teach and help to apply the Word of God. But every one of us are going to be examining the Scripture to make sure it's true. Every one of us are going to be teaching and admonishing one another. And every one of us are going to be reaching out and speaking God's praise, both to believers and unbelievers. Now, how do we apply this? What does that look like? Let me, let me ask one question today for each of us. And that question is, am I helping build a biblically-based church? Because if what I'm saying is true, a biblically-based church is not a place you drive to on a Sunday morning. Okay? A biblically-based church is something I'm helping to build. Because it means I'm one of the stones that's being built together. And it means that I'm helping keep that mortar of the word of God between the various stones. And so it is central to who we are at Bay Ridge. And to build a biblically-based church requires all of us, every one of us. It's like if you have a wall and there's any stones that aren't in that wall, they're all loose, then what starts happening to the wall? the whole thing becomes weakened. There is no unimportant stone in the wall. And we'll talk in a couple weeks, there's also no stone, there's no contemplation here that I come to Jesus and I'm not part of the living house. <laughs> there, there is no such contemplation at all. So how do we do it? Well, let me throw out a few questions to ask if I am building, helping build a biblically-based church. Am I eager to hear and respond to God's word. 
I want to say that this is not because, you know, well, Brett comes in and he worked hard all week, so he's hoping people are wanting to pay attention. Please understand, what I say and think is of no consequence. None. What God says in his word is of ultimate consequence. And when we gather every Sunday... From the very beginning when oftentimes a scripture is read and we start singing the word of God and we are praying God's word and we read the very breath of God and then we study that and we talk about that, the God of the universe is addressing you and addressing me. That's what's happening every time we gather. Not just when Brett's talking, the whole time we are gathered. So when that happens, pick somebody that you really think is awesome. Pick a hero you have, whether it's a sports figure or some character out of history or a musician, and you heard, you know, you knew this person was going to show up and they were going to talk to you. How many of us would be eager for that? See, I mean, you know, I, I got people that I really love. Like, I, I got musicians I really, really love. And if I heard that guy was going to be here and talking about how he wrote this song, I would be excited. I would be a kid in a candy shop, okay? Uh, you know, if, if you're a football guy, I remember t talking to Greg one time, and he told me he met Roger Staubach, who was his hero, and you didn't wash that hand for a while, did you? Right? And he still remembers it decades later. Roger Staubach's good. Jesus, better. And Jesus is here to speak to you and to me every time we gather. Am I eager to hear and respond to God's word? I know it can be, well, we're doing it again, and we're doing it again, and we're doing it again. But friends, the God of the universe is here to speak to us in a unique way it doesn't happen anywhere else other than when the people of God gather I don't mean it doesn't happen anywhere other than Bay Ridge wherever God's people gather he is there to speak are we there to say speak O Lord let your word feed and fill and form us second way to ask if I'm helping build a biblically based church am I personally studying and applying God's word Nobody can study and apply God's word for you. Am I taking it and studying it myself? Okay, uh, many of you can remember, you know, as you go through school, particularly, you know, as you move on, I remember when I was in high school, I went to a really, really bad high school. It was, the academic standards were not very good, let's say. That's how I could make it up to the academy. And then suddenly I got up to the academy and I discovered this weird thing. No matter how good the teacher was, I had to actually go home and study it myself. Like I discovered that when I would go into a certain test and it was like, is this the class we've been studying? Because I like don't recognize any of this stuff right here. Because I haven't been personally at home studying this. I just assumed whatever you told me was enough. Any teachers here know what I'm talking about? There's no way to do it. Well, it's the same thing here. We have to personally get into God's word. 
I've got to study it myself, and I've got to let God speak it to me. Because what God spoke to Brett this week about this teaching and what's going on and what this passage is saying is going to be different than you. But the God of the universe knows who you are and what you need, and he can speak that to you personally. But only if I listen. Only if I open the word of God day by day and say, speak, O Lord, your servant listens. Am I doing that? Am I trying to apply it to my own life? Thirdly, am I speaking God's words to others here in the congregation? Because if you're just saying, well, you know, I hear it, I receive it, and I'm going to leave it to others to do that speaking to others, we're going to have too many places that there's not mortar between the stones and the wall and the house gets wobbly. We've got to be speaking it to each other. Do you speak God's word to other believers? Can I ask you, when's the last time you spoke to somebody about the scripture, about who God is, what God is saying, what the gospel is, how, how God's been speaking and working in your life? And if the answer is, I don't remember last time, then let me challenge and encourage you be part of building a biblically-based church. Look for opportunities to do that. Last question, and then we're going to come to the table. Am I speaking God's word to the lost around me? If the Bible is God's word breathed, and if the Bible is true, and obviously we believe it is, then the gospel is true and Jesus is the only hope for a lost and dying world. And the people that you are going to play with and joke with and maybe get angry with and work next to tomorrow are everlasting creatures. And they are headed for eternal realms of glory or they're going to be locked out from the presence of God. That's kind of important. Am I speaking the word of God? Because we can't be biblically based. If we really believe the scripture, if we really believe it, we speak it to people around us. We're going to have opportunity this week with the folks here from Winter Relief just to be in conversation, and then oftentimes it'll open up and we can speak to them. So I want to encourage you to look at all of these things and do this. Ask those questions. Now what we're going to do is we're going to come to the table, and that may seem a little bit unusual for some folks at the end of a teaching about the importance of Scripture. But this table has always held a central place in worship. The Reformers correctly taught that the word and the sacrament go together. In fact, ministry was oftentimes referred to as word and sacrament ministry. The word, the scripture, explains what happens here at this table. It explains to us how we can come to this table. Um, and the sacraments make the word visible. We preach the gospel and we talk about Christ broken for us. And in a moment, we're going to see a visible representation of that. And there are times that that picture is worth a thousand words. And the sacrament does that. At the table, we see the word of the gospel made visible. Christ lived for us. Christ 
died for us. Christ has been raised for us, and he intercedes for us, and he will one day return. And so we come to this table today to confess our lack of hunger. If you say, wow, that description of what it means to be biblically based is not a representation of my daily life, now's the time to confess that. And now's the time to say, God, my hunger level is not what it ought to be. Would you create that hunger in me? And amazingly enough, this table also gives us grace and renews our very hunger for God and his word. So I want to encourage and challenge you today. First off, this table is for anybody who's a believer. If you understand the very gospel we've been talking about, you are a dead stone. And what can dead stones do to make themselves alive? Nothing, right? I mean, is there any chance that a rock out in the parking lot is just going to suddenly say, I'm alive? No. Only God can make a dead stone an alive stone. But the gospel is that that is exactly what Jesus Christ has done to us. And we respond in faith to God's work. And so if you are here and you are a believer and you say, I am a living stone because I had, I had not received mercy, but now I have because of Jesus Christ. I was not the people of God, but now I am. Not because of anything I have done, but because of what Christ has done for me. Then we encourage you to come to the table today and to receive grace. And to see, as I go through this, I encourage you, watch. See the word made visible. And then receive broken body and shed blood that you might be strengthened, that your hunger for God might be deepened, and that we don't try to fill it with something other than God and his word. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, as we come to this table today, we recognize that it is, the sacrament is the word made visible. Lord, our only hope to be a living stone is that you live for us, and you died for us, and you were raised by the mighty power of God for us, and that you have ascended, and that you sit at the right hand of God, ever making intercession for us. Lord, as we come to this table today, we proclaim that is our hope. We have no hope other than the gospel. And Lord, in taking this meal today, we proclaim, we believe, Jesus, that you are the cornerstone. You are the foundation. You are the capstone of the entire building. We are not among those who reject you. We are among those who trust in you and will never be put to shame. Lord, we thank you for this. We ask that you would meet us by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them, and we will take them together in a couple of moments. And again, if there is any sense in you that I'm lacking this hunger or whatever, come to God. Confess. Receive mercy, grace, and strength.
Father, as we come to this table and we hold this bread in our hands, we are reminded that your scripture, your word was oftentimes compared to bread. And when our Lord Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted to look to other sources than you after being in a fast for 40 days and he was hungry, he responded, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. But Jesus, where you so succeeded, we have so often failed. Lord, you have told us your word is bread, but we have stuffed our face with other things trying to fill a void. You have promised us that your word is a treasure. It is to be sought for and dug like a miner would dig for gems. But we've turned away and desired trinkets instead. Lord, we confess this morning how often our desires have run contrary from the very moment that our father and mother in the garden thought that a piece of fruit would fulfill them more than hearing and listening to the voice of the living God. So Lord, we confess that we have been like them. We have hungered for that which we should not, and too often we have not hungered for that which you have given to us. But Lord, we also recognize that Jesus, you were broken in our place, and you were the perfect sacrifice. Whereas we turn to other things, you resisted that temptation, not just once in the wilderness, but every day, with every breath, and every thought, every word, and every deed, and every desire of your heart. You were always obedient to the Father, and you were obedient in our place. And so Lord, we openly confess our sin, knowing the only way that we are forgiven and cleansed is because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we say thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, the bread that was broken for us. Take and eat. Lord Jesus, as we hold this cup that represents your blood, the blood that was spilled so that we could be cleansed from the stain and penalty of our sin, but also freed from its power. Lord, we confess that your blood is sufficient to make us into those living stones, to make us children of God. And it is sufficient to raise us to life, to give us an eternal inheritance, to give us a hunger for the things of God. Lord, how powerful is the blood of Christ by which we are saved and sealed, the blood of the covenant. And so, Lord, truly this is a cup of thanksgiving because, Lord, we stand here this morning grateful, as Peter said, that once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God, and it's by the blood of Christ. And once we had not received mercy, we were children of wrath and disobedience by nature, but now we are loved. We have received mercy it has been sealed to us by the precious blood of Christ. And so, Father, we say we are grateful and thankful for the blood of Christ that has taken us from being dead stones to living stones, 
from not your people to your people, from being scattered to being gathered together and built as the people of God. Father, how grateful we are. We say thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus Christ that has done all of this. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall fresh upon us now. I pray where we have confessed our sins that you would fasten to our hearts the reality of forgiveness through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I pray where there has been lack of hunger. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us this week and you would say, come all who are hungry and thirsty, come buy, eat and drink without any cost or any money, eat to your soul's content. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would so refresh in us in the glory of our salvation, in the glory you have given to us in Jesus Christ, that our tongues would overflow to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd give us opportunities here at Winter Relief with our friends and our co-workers, our neighbors, our family members, maybe even just a random person we're standing next to in line in a store. I pray we'd make the most of every opportunity and that the mercy we have been given would be quick on our lips to speak to others. And Holy Spirit of the living God, we pray not only for ourselves, but we pray for those around us who do not yet know. We pray you would have mercy on them. We pray you would draw them and that those who would imagine they had no need would see their deep need and they would find it met in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would do all of this in the name of Jesus, by the power of your spirit, for your glory and our good. Amen. Let's stand together. And I encourage you to receive the blessing of God. Now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Go in the peace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.